there is a recognition that the UK Health Service is not going to be able to reform itself. We've been trying to do that for about 10 years, reinventing the wheel, and not always a particularly round wheel comes out of that reinvention process. So there is a recognition at all senior levels that we need to bring in ideas from elsewhere. We're live from London today with two Oliver Wyman partners, Crispin Ellison and Tom Robinson. Our guest today, Crispin, discusses UK healthcare opportunities and shares his views on building momentum in the US for an international brain cancer community movement where ideas are shared worldwide. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. For more on today's show, visit health.oliverwyman.com. Join our online community on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Thanks. Enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Tom Robinson. I'm a partner in the health and life sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, we're talking with one of my fellow partners, Crispin Ellison. Crispin works in healthcare with the NHS and the Prime Minister's office. I wanted to talk with him to hear about the work that he's doing in the UK to see if there are any interesting learnings for us in US healthcare. Crispin's been working with clients wanting to transform through technology and is also working with others to try to crack brain cancer. Crispin, welcome to the podcast today. Hello from London. Uh, I'd just like to say I'm not trying to crack brain cancer on my own. <laughs> that, would be a, that would be a difficult feat indeed. Maybe, maybe, Crispin, it would make sense to just provide a little bit of background on the healthcare environment in the UK for those less familiar. Yeah, um, very briefly, I mean, uh, as you will be aware, the UK is predominantly a public sector um, healthcare system. Uh, over 90% of uh, the payers, uh, the, the, the payment is uh, from the government and it's free uh, to all uh, recipients, universal access in, at the point of care, uh, with one or two exceptions like dentistry where, you, where there's a copay. But, but, but the general principle is it's free at the point of care. Um, uh, NHS England, which is a sort of uh, about 160 billion sterling, so that's probably around 200 billion US uh, organization. Uh, it runs the whole setup, but it's not the monolith that often people think. Um, it is actually quite segmented and quite fractured with a lot of different and often not particularly well coordinated national bodies um, sort of setting direction and allocating resource um, and then a, a plethora of provider bodies um, of different shapes and sizes. Uh, it's quite regionally run so although you've got the sort of central standards and direction being set from the centre actual decision making is on a regional basis and NHS England's divided into 44 areas, each of which is responsible for an average population of about a million um, and will be a cluster of hospitals, um, primary care uh, providers, 
mental health providers, social care providers. Um, I mean, does that give you a flavor, Tom? Of Yeah, that's, that's helpful, Christian. I think for the audience here, do you think that the, um, the, the decades of managing in that risk environment have provided a lot of lessons that could be applied elsewhere? I mean, I think there are some lessons that can be applied elsewhere. A lot of the challenges are common, I think. Um, I mean, the, I suppose the big difference between the UK and the US system is the proportion of GDP committed to healthcare, i.e. the cost of the system overall. UK system, uh, average cost per patient is something around £2,000, um, and the cost of the system is 9% of GDP, so half the relative cost of the US system. Um, and, and, I mean, with... Uh, various exceptions you know it provides you know a pretty good service across that range uh, of systems uh, what it does do is it there are a whole lot of financial limits and caps on the very expensive treatments so the very latest and most expensive cancer treatment may not be available on the nhs if it is viewed uh, not to be cost effective and as a fairly mature process about judging the cost effectiveness of treatments uh, it needs updating but uh, it, it's a relatively scientific process run by an organization called the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. And, and from my understanding with that focus on clinical excellence with that focus on cost there's also now and perhaps this goes with the with a new health minister um, that was recently appointed, Matt Hancock, perhaps, perhaps there comes this an, an ongoing focus on what to do next. How can I don't think that anyone's satisfied with the current state of the system, are they? No, I mean the the, the current health system in the UK, as with so many uh, jurisdictions across the world, you know, is in a state of crisis. Uh, it is unable to cope with rising demand. Um, and uh, it, you know, it is under huge pressure. Uh, and it's fine. It knows it's in the wrong place. It knows it needs to be, you know, in a digitally enabled, personalized medicine um, uh, you know, space which is focused, you know, where all the support is focused around the patient um, and uh, with a real emphasis on prevention. But in effect, it's still stuck, you know, in a 1960s model of reactive service, um, very provider-centric service. Uh, I mean the like of which doesn't really exist in other industries because it's free to customers. Um, customers can't vote with their feet and go elsewhere. Um, and so there's very little customer focus. Um, it's organized around the providers. So does this mean when we think about all, you know, from where I live in San Francisco, does it mean the innovators out here have opportunities over there 
to opportunities to play and help transform or, or is it just a very tough um, market for them to access? I think both is, uh, would be my answer to that. I think there is a recognition that the UK Health Service is not going to be able to reform itself. We've been trying to do that for about 10 years, reinventing the wheel and not always a particularly round wheel comes out of that reinvention process. So there is a recognition at all senior levels that we need to bring in ideas from elsewhere. I think you know, the particular focus at the moment is you know, to what, how can digit, digitization be used as the vehicle to transform the service? Um, the new health secretary, Matt Hancock, who you mentioned, um, has come with a very strong technology um, digital agenda, and this is what he wants to do. I think the other big change uh, that we've seen in the last year is that the prime minister um, allocated a very significant step up in funding. So the NHS is going to get an additional 20 billion a year. Um, so it's sort of a five, 6% jump in funding, which may not sound a lot, but I mean, a 5% jump overnight is a lot. Um, and therefore, for the first time, I think there is the potential to have the seed funding necessary to drive transformation. So yes, they're open to ideas from overseas. Uh, and yes, for the first time, there's probably the money to be able to transform the service. What, what do you think their focus is going to be? I mean, it, it's on the, you know, it, it is about shifting from the 1960s model with its hard division between primary and secondary care, uh, focused on reactive, being a reactive service. And it's shifting that to something which is much more care built around the patient, you know, in the community, trying to shift power out of hospitals um, into the community. I mean, uh, the UK already spends more, uh, a greater proportion of its budget on primary care than in the US, a significantly greater proportion. But the primary care system is still um, uh, under huge pressure and underperforming. Um, but so the challenges are, you know, how, how do you um, stop reactive treatment driven in hospitals into proactive preventative treatment, you know, in the community. Um, now, the way that they're going about that is uh, a bit of it's organizational. They've come together to try and create coherent systems um, at the local level, each system being responsible for a population, let's say, on average of a million. Um, and... Uh, you know, and, and to start to introduce, you know, population health techniques um, with, you know, a common ownership of all the different providers of the budget. Um, but this is not an easy journey um, uh, in a public sector system. Um, you know, we're struggling to get progress on that at the moment. And I think that's why... Um, there is this intent to try and use digitization 
as a vehicle to completely transform the sort of customer experience of patients. Um, That's interesting because when you mentioned the the transformation around from from primary care to broader to the new front doors as we call them, I was thinking very much around home health, around community hubs, around nutrition, all the other types of facilities that you might wrap around primary care. But you're also thinking about um, you're probably thinking about mental health. You're probably thinking yeah. about the sort of the, the diagnosis and the triage platforms, the aiders, the Babylons of this world. Is that, is that where you're going? I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Babylon's an interesting case in point. Uh, 18 months ago, they launched a um, telemedicine service for primary care uh, with a, based on uh, what I understand to be a very strong sort of AI platform. Uh, and they, they'd already launched this in the very small private sector here, but about 18 months ago, they launched it uh, with the NHS. Um, now that, you know, is opening up a new sort of experience of being able to go on your mobile phone and within two hours, you know, uh, having a face-to-face, well, well, a mobile um, conversation with a clinician, um, the data you know around that isn't proven. It's caused a lot of challenge here because it has fundamentally attacked the economic model um, of the current primary care system. So there's huge resistance from uh, clinicians um, uh, in primary care to this because they see. Um, the sort of Babylon uh, GP on hand model and GP on hand is what their, their public sector model is called. They see that model as taking off uh, all the less, the non-chronic patients and they're all going on, on a sort of uh, mobile, in, uh, mobile engagement, which is really cheap. But under the current tariffs and reward system uh, in the UK, uh, um, those uh, doctors are paid, um, you know, 150 pounds. The GP is paid 150 pounds per patient. So if you take all the low usage patients away and leave the traditional service with just those who require much more attention, um, you, you know, really attack that economic model. Now, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing because I think the economic model is driving things in the wrong direction. But um, they're going to have to change it fairly quickly because what they've got at the moment really isn't working. It's not sustainable. Right. And, and I think as you and I have talked about in the past, this, this march to better, uh, a better consumer experience provided at zero marginal cost will ultimately prove unstoppable, providing we can prove out the that the, the, the diagnosis actually is, is effective and the triaging yeah, I, is actually effective? I think it will. I mean, one of the interesting challenges in a public sector free healthcare system is you don't have the power of the consumer to drive change in a way that you see it in the US. Because the consumer can't actually, you know, go elsewhere, uh, the consumer voice is much, much weaker. Um, and that's one of the challenges in, in a sort of public sector system 
um, is you don't have that huge lever to drive the change you need. And, and that's one of the reasons we've been struggling. Um, you know, that said, and it all sounds very negative, that said, as I say, there's a very significant investment pot that's been put out there. Uh, they're encouraging people who have experience of running population health through digital systems to come and work with the NHS. They've produced contractual frameworks to attract um, overseas providers who can come in and work with the NHS to do that. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not all negative, um, but uh, it would be wrong to think that they don't have uh, some real challenges. Yeah, despite your depiction of a system in the 1960s, it sounds like there are certain aspects where the NHS is moving faster, Babylon being a good example. I, I for one, am always a little concerned when I see the NHS moving faster than corporate America. But I think this is one case where maybe the US can, can learn a bit, particularly given the, the more consumer-oriented approach that, that we need to drive. Mm. Yeah, and I think it will be really interesting to see, I mean, as I say, the, the data on Babylon isn't in yet. Uh, you know, it's still a trial, um, and it will come under huge attack when the evaluation of that trial is done. And it will be interesting to see whether there is, you know, the, part of the challenge is, is there the political will to drive the transformation needed? Um, you know, and, you know, all the challenges of closing a hospital, um, an underperforming hospital, uh, are magnified when it is a public sector system. Um, and you can vote out, you know, the uh, people who make the decision to close your local hospital, even if it makes clinical and economic sense to close it down. So, you know, those are some of the challenges we have. But definitely open to business from, you know, cutting edge US providers who've got experience at running sort of digitized population health. Crispin, I've heard you talking about some of your work on brain cancer um, and that we've made very little progress on it in the last 40 years. What is it that you're working on? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting mirror to the States. I mean, brain cancer is an area where uh, there's been no breakthroughs, as you say, for the last 40 years, um, no real changes in treatment, survivability is no better than it was 40 years ago. Very much brought to a head in the UK when uh, Tessa Jowell, who is a senior politician, contracted brain cancer and made a very emotional uh, speech in the House of Lords, in you know, our Senate, um, about her condition. Um, and she sort of launched a movement uh, that, you know, we really need to get on and tackle this, you know, arguably one of the most difficult cancers to tackle, but it's, that shouldn't be an excuse to do nothing. And so on the back of her interventions, we've had a lot of political drive. We've had another debate in uh, the House of Commons, our House of Representatives, uh, a two and a half hour debate, um, and on uh, and and on the back of that, um, a, all the key stakeholders have started to pull together. So we've got researchers, pharma companies, uh, benefactors, charities, patient action groups, 
the government, the NHS, all coming together to try and build a program to make real progress in this area. Now, one of the, uh, and, and, and the Tessa Jal Brain Cancer Mission is now established. We did a pro bono piece of work to get that up and running. Um, but one of the challenges is, is that brain cancer requires larger populations than you have in a country of 50, 60 million. And therefore, this needs to be sort of internationalized um, so that we can share data on brain cancer. And indeed, um, you know, when there's someone of, uh, available, when you want to trial something, finding the appropriate patient, this is going to have to be developed into an international um, movement. The uh, Eliminating Cancer Initiative, which is a charitable initiative uh, founded by um, uh, an Australian benefactor and set it, uh, setting up on a global basis, is trying to drive some of this connectivity and to start getting international data sharing around this. So sharing of um, research, sharing of data, um, so that we can actually sort of tackle this on a global basis. And, you know, the, I think the interesting mirror is you have various cancer initiatives uh, in the, uh, the States. So in uh, Vice President Joe Biden, who's in London this week, um, you know, he's been driving some initiatives. And of course, you've had a similar with uh, John McCain, very similar senior politician uh, afflicted with this disease. And it'll be interesting to see whether you can build momentum in the US to tackle this disease um, uh, and, and to sort of cooperate with the initiatives in other countries. Chinese are also looking to sort of join in, although I think early days as yet. So is it, I know it's early days. Is it, is it possible to put a timeline on, on how quickly you think progress could be possible? I mean, I think one of the key things that, I mean, there's a number of things. There are some in-house things in the UK, like making sure that everyone, every hospital that treats brain cancer, you know, is doing it to the appropriate standards, has the appropriate equipment and treatments available. And that wasn't happening. And that's already in the bank um, as of the, the summer. You know, that has been achieved. Um, I think it's now it's a question of sort of trying to get together um, and focus on different sort of research areas. And one of the key things in the UK we're looking to develop is adaptive trials um, so that when a patient, you know, who has brain cancer tries one treatment, it doesn't work. They then move on and try another treatment. Now, we don't have the protocols for that. We don't have the data to allow that. So we're looking to shape and build that over the next 18 months or so. And we've already got, I think, some significant progress. We've had the uh, attracted uh, 80 million of investment in, uh, in three months. Uh, so that's over $100 million of investment. Um, and it's now a question of sort of pulling all this together into a program. And there'll be some early deliverables next year. But of course, the main challenge is you know, this is a five or 10 year journey. But what we're trying to do is to put some focus and energy behind uh, treating this very difficult disease and also trying to open up so that people don't try and uh, um, 
do their research and their treatments in isolated pockets, but we create a global community uh, where we can share data, ideas, and even patients where appropriate. It, it's obviously a, a horrible disease. Have, have you also looked at the economics of the problem? I mean, that, that is part of the challenge is that, you know, it's a, it's a, you're talking about small populations, complex, uh, you know, very complex, multiple cancers um, impacting very small populations. And so that has been, I think, one of the, it, the reason that nothing has happened is, you know, small populations uh, and really complex um, challenge. Um, and the two of those you know, as you rightly identify, don't fit together into the normal economic model where to get investment, you need volume. Um, and, so, and so that is one of the reasons, again, why we need to globalize this and stop doing things on a national basis, uh, because the populations won't support the economics unless we can do it on a much, much bigger scale. Fantastic. I, I wish you all of the very best with that, Crispin. Um, it's been Great chatting with you today. Thanks for giving us a little taste of England. Um, I better let you get back to watching the cricket and drinking tea. Um, thanks very much for being our guest today on Oliver Wyman Health. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Tom. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We also invite you to subscribe to the Oliver Wyman Health community on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This way, you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.